1: He, he knew uh, they had a very high opinion of of Knowlton um, from what he knew of his service in the French and Indian War and from what he had done it during the time that the, the Washington's army was besieging the British in Boston. So Washington decided that uh, he needed a special unit.
0: That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Price talking about the life of Thomas Knowlton, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, David Price. And he'll be talking about an article he wrote entitled Thomas Knowlton's Revolution. This is one of those great articles that distills a life into one very readable, very interesting uh, article. And it highlights a person that I didn't know a lot about before I read the article and spoke with David Price, Thomas Knowlton of Massachusetts. But as you read this, you'll sort of be amazed at his life and his service in the war. Uh, He was kind of everywhere. Uh, He even was able to raise a regiment known as Knowlton's Rangers uh, to kind of do the dirty work of the revolution, uh, which is really a great honor considering the kind of person you have to be uh, to lead a group like that. So it's a really great article. Of course, you can read it at www.allthingsliberty.com and it's a really interesting chance to get to know someone with a very fascinating life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Price. David Price, thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you for the invitation, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Well, I'm not a professional historian um, I don't even have a degree in history. I guess the closest I came to that was uh, minoring in history in college, um, although I was a poli-sci major. And I suppose some people would say, well, that's the same as history, but don't tell that to a political scientist. Um, so I was bitten by the history bug at a very early age. I'm going to date myself now when I say this, but that was at the time of the Civil War centennial. I remember my father taking me to Gettysburg when I was eight or nine. Uh, I think it was in the summer of 1961 and, you know,
0: <clears throat> the
1: rest, the rest was history, as they say. Um, so I, never, you know, taught history or, um, engaged in, uh, historical research really until, uh, you know, recently when I started uh, writing a, um, a series of books that I guess you could say amounts to a trilogy about the ten crucial days of the revolution. After I retired from my uh, my career, uh, I was I was a New Jersey uh, state employee for thirty four years and two months, but it was counting. Um, I went up to Washington Crossing Historic Park which is about 20 minutes from my house, by car. And I knew they were looking for uh, tour guides. And um, they call them historical interpreters. And so I volunteered my services there and uh, did that for a couple of years, uh, at which point they unvolunteered me and made me a part-time um, staff person for the, the Friends of Washington Crossing Park, which is the non uh, that runs the tour program there and conducts the special events like the reenactment of the crossing in December and operates the gift shop and, and other things. And then at some point, um, I guess about six years ago now, I decided to, to write. I mean, I, I always like to write. I think I described myself on like. My, uh, on the homepage of my website as a history buff who likes to write. And um, I had, I had written some articles for the the friend's newsletter and some book reviews. And then I decided to write some a series of profiles about what I call unsung Patriot heroes of the 10 crucial days. And that eventuated in my first book, rescuing the revolution. Um, I was uh well, I decided to write a second book, The Road to Ascending Creek, which um, is a history of the, uh, of the 10 Crucial Days, but kind of a contrarian one, I think, because it, it focuses on the um, or, or devotes uh, maybe some people might think disproportionate attention to the Second Battle, Second like Battle of Trenton or the Battle of Ascending Creek, uh, because I felt then and do now that that was actually the most pivotal event of the uh, period, and maybe of the war, even though it was kind of a roddy danger field of battles. So I dedicated that book to the memory of of one of the unsung heroes that I wrote about in my first book, uh, who was uh, Edward Hand, Colonel Edward Hand, and his men. And then in my last book, um, most recent book, John Hasselt's World, I wrote about another unsung, if you will, who uh, also, like Hand, was um, allocated a chapter in my first book, wrote about Hand and his, his Delaware Regiment of 1776, Delaware Blues. Um, and, um, you know, at that point, I, you know, I, I kind of felt like, well, I, I, I don't know that I set out on a, a mission to write a trilogy in 10 Crucial Days, certainly not when I started, but at some point when I got into that, maybe when I was working on the second book, I felt like, Hey, you know, this is something I'd like to do. And I did it. Um, how well is, you know, for others to judge, obviously, but you know, mission accomplished. And, and I didn't feel as though I needed to do anything else at that point in the way of a, you know, major literary project. Um, since I finished that third book, I had launched a website and started, uh, publishing a series of blog posts on rev war related topics on the website. Um, And I thought, well, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing going forward from a literary standpoint. But then um, I I guess I must've had it in the back of my mind to, to possibly write about another unsung Patriot hero, although one who had nothing to do with the 10 crucial days. I, I, I knew that if I was going to write another book, it was going to be rebel war related, but I wanted to get away from the the TCD, the 10 crucial days, because I figured I had beaten that horse to death and, uh, and exhumed the body and beat it some more. Um, And so I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I guess I, I I came up with the idea of writing about Thomas Knowlton, um, who I was aware from having read, um, you know, other other books that were not about the TCD, um, and um, so I thought, well, nobody, as far as I know, no one has written a book about him. There's a lot of um, snippets about him in. in uh, various primary and secondary sources, but other than a biographical sketch from 1861, uh, by a fellow named, uh, Asheville Woodward, who was born and raised in the same town of Connecticut, where Hazlitt, uh, I'm sorry, Hazlitt, <laughs> where Renolton uh, lived as a boy, um, which is Ashford, Connecticut in Wyndham County in the northeast corner of the state. um, there, there hasn't been anything that, you know, remotely amounts to a, to a biographical work on him. So the article that I wrote for the journal, um, I conceived of as a, um, shall we say, very lengthy abstract for what would be a longer work. And um, so I've started you know, monkeying around with a manuscript that I, I hope will eventuate in a book about Knowlton. Um, I, I've been encouraged, but not received official approval from the publisher yet. And um, you know, but I, I was I was pleased with how the article turned out. So I thought, well, that's you know, a good omen. I think, or like to think, um, in terms of you know, going forward with this. This book. It is is a challenge. It's a challenge in the same way that um, writing the book about Hazlitt was a challenge, in that you're dealing with somebody about whom not a great deal is known in terms of his pre-Rev War life. And uh, you know, in Hazlitt's case, we don't even know when he was born. Uh, I think we haven't narrowed down to one of two years, but we don't have an image of him from the 19th century Uh, that was um, you know uh, created by a 19th century. I'm sorry, an 18th century uh, artist. At least in Nolte's case, we do. We do have such a um, an image um, in the form of John Trumbull's painting of the Battle of Bunker Hill, which features him very prominently. Um, and I think by doing so reflects what what John Trumbull thought about Knowlton and his role in the Revolution. Um, and unlike that we do know, um, pretty much at least, within a week or so of um, when Nolton was born. So, but with with Nolton, what's what's even more of a disadvantage than I had with Hazlitt, at least with Hazlitt, he left behind some correspondence, not a lot, but some, not as much as I would have hoped for, for someone who was as well uh, educated as he was. And maybe, you know, he left behind a lot. that's just been lost. I don't know. But in Nolton's case, so far, at least, I haven't come across anything that he wrote, except for a, a signature on a, on a document that was signed by about a dozen other people. And um, apparently, from what I gather, his just, just finding his signature is, you know, is a challenge. It's very rare, um, and so finding anything more extensive than that that he wrote, other than his name, I mean, besides his name, that would give the you know, the, the uh, reader, a firsthand sense of, of what the man would like, uh, what made him tick, is, you know, it's kind of hard to do that. So, I'm, so far, at least, it looks like I'm going to be reliant on the assessments of others um, from, um, you know, the accounts of uh, people who, from his peers, especially the uh, his fellow soldiers from GW on down. The soldiers who served under Nolan, Um, and you know, assessments of him by in in later historical works. Um, But you know, that's what I'm dealing with. But I I think that he deserves to have somebody try to do this uh, to write a book about him. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who could do a better job than I can, but as far as I know, nobody is doing that. And so, I'd like to, uh, you know, I thought I should tackle that so i guess i I've giving you a very long-winded answer
0: could you talk a little bit about what we know about knowlton's upbringing where did he come from
1: yeah well again there's not that much known about him but he came from a a, a family that goes way back um his uh forebears came over from england in the 1630s and um I think the the earliest that a, a. Knowlton, uh, one of the English Knowltons, was uh, found and or detected in this in the colonies was around 1639 in Ipswich, Massachusetts. And the uh, great grandson of that that Knowlton um, was the father of thomas knowlton um whose name was william william knowlton and um so william um and his wife had nine children thomas was the seventh of the nine children born in 1740 in uh boxford uh massachusetts uh in essex county just north of boston um and uh, as I said, the son of of, uh, William and Martha. And um, the family moved to Ashford in Northeastern Connecticut when he was eight years old. His father bought a a large farm, about 400 acres, which was a considerable considerable amount of land for a a Connecticut farmer, certainly a lot more than, than what the average Connecticut farmer owned at the time. Um, his father passed away only five years later five years after they had moved to Ashford and so then the property was divided among his his sons Um, there's some parallels I see in uh, between the the, the youth of uh, Knowlton and George Washington in the sense that um, you know they were well they were both reared in a rural environment, but then so were most people at a time when, you know, it was an overwhelmingly rural society, where probably at least, you know, 90% of the people lived on farms or in small towns and villages. Um, But uh, Washington's father, um, August, died when he was 11, I believe. And old father, William, died when he was 12. Uh, Neither one of them had a great deal of, as far as I could tell, formal instruction that is classroom based instruction um what learning uh or, or education of that type no had i think was limited to you know whatever the the average amount of schooling was received by a young boy in the colonies at that time which i you know for the for the average youth i don't think was very much and and was limited to uh you know certain very few basic subjects like, you know, spelling and arithmetic. Um, You know, he didn't have the opportunity to to learn Latin or um, Greek or French, you know, the hallmarks of an educated man in the uh, 18th century. In that respect, he was like GW. Um, So I think they both had to assume a lot of responsibility, farm-related responsibility, uh, at, at a very young age. And then, of course, they both went off to war at a very young age in uh, the French and Indian War. Actually, Washington was eight years older than uh, than Nolan. Um, and both, of course, saw uh, a great deal of uh, combat uh, experience. And um, so when he f- went off to war, uh, to fight the French and their Indian allies in 1757. Um, He was only 16. His older brother, his next oldest brother, Daniel, who was two years older than, than Thomas had joined up the year before. And they would serve together throughout the war. So he, he served from 1757 through 1762. That was in a series of, uh, you know, one year campaigns. They, the, he would enlist in the spring be mustered in in the spring and then be mustered out in the fall generally um and then go home to the farm in ashford for the winter and you know attend to his responsibilities there um so he had a a rapid uh, ascent through serving in the uh as a as a Connecticut uh, provincial uh in that conflict um He received, between 1758 and 1762, he received three promotions, from private to sergeant to ensign to second lieutenant, and he participated in four major campaigns, uh, the Battle of Wood Creek in, I guess it's west central New York, near Lake George in 1758, um, the siege of uh, Fort Ticonderoga or Fort Carillon as the French called it uh in uh, the following year 59 the uh capture of Montreal 1760 was of course was the last french holdout uh or stronghold in canada and then in 1762 the siege of havana after the the british had declared war on spain uh, and spain had reciprocated and um so an Anglo-American expedition was dispatched that uh, to, to capture Havana that included um, provincial soldiers from Connecticut, uh, New York, and New Jersey, the largest contingent, which included uh, Dalton was from Connecticut, about a thousand men. And he was serving at that time, um, as he did on prior occasions during the war, under the uh, command of israel putnam um who he got to know they got to know each other quite well during the war and that would carry over into the the revolution no you know was uh became one of putnam's favorite soldiers because uh, they, these they were both connecticut farmers from windham county um Uh, in uh, Northeast Massachusetts, uh, sorry, Northeast Connecticut. Actually, they both were born in Massachusetts. So they had that in common to begin with. Um, And uh, so Nolan survived two near-death experiences during the war, uh, one at the Battle of uh, Wood Creek from uh, musket fire, and in 1762, during the siege of Havana from uh, tropical disease, which felled about 60% of the 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 Connecticut uh, unit that he was uh, serving in. Um, So what he learned during that war was, uh, you know, not only the art of, of soldiering, um, you know, leading men, but also uh, wilderness warfare in particular, and the uh, tactics of ranger units which were made famous, of course, by uh, Robert Rogers, Captain then Major. Robert Rogers, um, Putnam and Knowlton both served with the the, the, uh, the Ranger units that that Rogers was leading in. Uh, well, Putnam before uh, Knowlton, but um, so you know that that. Their, their distinctive uh, approach to, to warfare, the the type of um you know, reconnaissance, um, probes, raids into hostile territory, um, you know, in, in the wilderness context was something that Nolton learned at a at a very very young age. So by the time the war ended, or by the time his service ended, which was um I guess effectively, when, when hostilities ended, he was only uh, 21, but he was a veteran. You know, he had served for several years, and as I said, had you know more than one near-death experience. So he was a he was an experienced uh, an experienced soldier, but he appears to have made the the transition you know back to farming uh, reasonably successfully when the war ended. And he had, during the interval, one of the intervals um, between his military campaigns, when he had returned home to Ashford, he had married Anna Keys. At that point Thomas was 18 and Anna was only 15. And they would go on to have, uh, well, nine children, two of whom died at a very young age. And um, Thomas's Uh, oldest son Frederick um who was born well during the time that Thomas was serving in the French and Indian War would later join him um in the revolution in 1775 at the age of 14 would be with his father at Bunker Hill and would be with his father at the the Battle of Harlem Heights the following year um when his father received a mortal wound and he was with, with his father, I think in, in his final moments or, or close to his final moments.
0: Knowlton will fight at Bunker Hill. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so he, well, I mean, I think I, mean, I mentioned the, the Trumbull painting of uh, Knowlton at, at Bunker Hill and um and the image we have of him in that painting is probably the best likeness. We have the fact that um Trumbull portrayed him so prominently in that painting in the forefront, even ahead of William Prescott, who at least according to some people's accounts, was commanding the militia at Bunker Hill. You know, some people say it was Putnam, some people would say it was it was Prescott. Um but anyway the fact that, that Nolan uh Portrays in that way, I think, is a commentary on certainly what what uh, what what Trumbull you know thought of Nolan, um, but I think also reflects the the uh, recognition that that Nolan received coming out of the Battle of Bull Hill. He, he became, at least according to one account, I think he was regarded as something of a legend, um, and. Someone trying to remember who who said this, that, you know, if if he, if in fact, Nolan had been in command um, at the Bunker Hill, things might've turned out somewhat differently for the, for the Americans in a more favorable way. I'm not quite certain how that would have occurred, but um, in any case, he was uh, at the, at the time um, he was a captain uh, with the fifth company of the Connecticut regiment serving under his old comrade in arms generally. Then now General Israel Putnam and, um, Milton had under his command some 200 men, uh, who were part of the larger force that was being led by William Prescott. So, uh, Prescott and the men who were immediately under his command were, were in the redoubt on Breeds Hill, um, or what subsequently became known as Breed's Hill. I don't believe it was known as Breed's Hill at the time of the battle, but, um, in any event, um, Prescott had ordered Knowles force to take up a position on the Eastern slope of Breed's Hill that was facing the uh, mystic river. And so they lined up along a livestock fence that stretched for several hundred yards from the redoubt, um, on, on the, I guess it was on the eastern side of the redoubt, on Breeze Hill. And then Nolan directed his men to reinforce this barrier with rails and posts that they took from other fields and filled the openings with uh, newly-cut grass and hay in order to create a, a suitable breastwork. And um, they held their place during the uh, the British attack um as you know the the british launched three charges the first was against the the left um the extreme left i guess of the defensive alignment which was uh john starks men from new hampshire and then the next was against Knowlton's force um against that guarding that fence line and then the third and final charge well actually i think it was the second and the third uh charge were against uh the redoubt so um Nolan and his men you know held their own and then when the ammunition got so low that the um Prescott's men in the redoubt could no longer you know resist the the oncoming british um and they pulled back Nolan's men acted as a protective rear guard to cover their retreat uh back to Bunker Hill and then you know, towards the, the, uh, the Charlestown neck, I think is what it's called, um, that is leading, leading from the the peninsula, the Charlestown peninsula back onto the, uh, the mainland. So, um, and um, as one of the, uh, one of the soldiers that was there said at the time, Nolan's men, quote, received the enemy to very tolerable advantage. And um, so that, battle went a long way towards uh, well I think he was already you know recognized as a um, skilled soldier but that battle went to to uh, contributed a great deal in terms of cementing his reputation among his peers and leading to his being promoted to major um, and um, then subsequent to that battle the follow up to that battle which is this is like a footnote in most historical texts, I think, but he um, led a raid back into Charlestown on uh, in January, the following January, January 8th, I think it was, to um, set fire to some of the few remaining houses that had not in, in the town that had not been destroyed by British artillery at the time of the battle in June 1775, because they wanted to prevent the British from being able to use this these houses as quarters or um, to prevent them from, from securing, um, you know, lumber to burn from the houses. And so they, Knowlton and his men, um, you know, and this was the kind of thing that he would have learned, the kind of tactical maneuver he would have learned from his experience um, fighting with the Rangers during the French and Indian war uh, launched this raid at night. And without firing a shot, they, um, They set fire to eight, uh, yeah, I think it was eight of the 14 houses and came away with uh, several prisoners, I believe, um, and were complimented, felt it was complimented by um, Washington for, you know, for his his leadership of that, uh, of that raid.
0: What were Knowlton's Rangers and why were they formed?
1: Well, they were founded because Washington had a desperate need for uh, intelligence, and this was a problem that was, um, well, I suppose it plagued him throughout the war, but it was especially plaguing him in 1776. And um, you know, he knew he knew it was a problem uh, that he needed a a, a more effective um, intel or, or, or recon uh capability than what he had um and you know he he knew uh they had a very high opinion of of Knowlton um uh, from what he knew of his service in the French-Indian and War and from what he had done at, at Bunker Hill um and subsequent activity as I mentioned um during the time that the that Washington's army was besieging the British in Boston so uh Washington decided during the uh, summer, late summer of 1776, that uh, he needed a special unit to assume responsibility for, for doing this sort of thing. And uh, so he asked Knowlton to do it or directed Knowlton to do it to form this contingent that became known as Knowlton's Rangers or the Connecticut Rangers, which included about 120 soldiers from Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island that were pulled from other, uh, other units. And uh, they were regarded as an elite force um, whose purpose was, as I indicated, to meet Washington's absolutely desperate need for information about the British forces opposing him um, to provide him with information about British troop locations and, and movements and... Um, try to ascertain what their intentions were. Um, the, I think this became, if Washington wasn't already aware of this before the Battle of Long Island, and he certainly was because, you know, he had no uh, firm idea about what the British were planning to do and where they were planning to do it you know all the while they were landing thousands of troops on long island he was thinking this might be a feint up until the last you know maybe two days before the battle thinking they might strike in manhattan instead or them or somewhere up the the hudson river and um so this was the you know the the purpose of um the rangers unit and they were operating, and then of course, they didn't. Um, they weren't operating all that long because they really, after after Nolan was killed at the Battle of Harlem Heights, um, the following month on September 16th, the, that was effectively the end, I think, of the Rangers as a as an intel unit. Uh, and indeed, they were operating in that in that manner um, at the time of that battle. on the day, as it uh, was killed, you know, they were probing. Um, the enemy in in hostile do it, conducting a a, a a reconnaissance mission into hostile territory, if you will, enemy-held territory, um, and so that unit um, is is regarded as the you know really the, the beginning of um, American military intelligence, um, or the, the first such unit in uh, the American Army, and uh, it's recognized as such to this day, um, you know, which is why the uh, you have the, the the date, 1776, when Nolan's Rangers were founded um, on the U.S. Army Intelligence Seal that's intended to, you know, don't, uh, denote the formation of of Knowlton's Rangers um, as the forerunner of the current Army's intelligence branch. And then 1995, the Military Intelligence Corps Association established something called the Knowlton Award, that is the name of it, in the colonel's honor to recognize members of the association, um, which encompasses the Army's various military intel uh, units and their personnel, uh, to recognize members of the association who have made significant contributions to the core and not just displaying outstanding professional competence, but also um, demonstrating the highest standards of integrity and uh, moral character. So that legacy, if you will, of the, of Knowlton's Rangers um, has to that extent anyway, has, you know, uh, extended down to this day.
0: David, we always end with this question. Uh, how does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Uh,
1: well, I think um, it gives the, well, I mean, aside from, you know, uh, enhancing the salience, I hope, <laughs> of an, a very worthy but unsung uh, revolutionary hero um, who was, as I said, was appears to have been universally esteemed by everyone who knew him in the army, those serving above him in rank above him, including Washington, uh, with whom Nolan was apparently associated, you know, quite closely and directly during this time, um, you know, down to the, the men who served under him, who appear to have adored him. Um, but it also, I hope the article, um, Gives people some sense of, uh, you know, how the um, military intelligence, what the beginnings of the military intelligence service in in the U.S. Army were, um, how the origins, you know, relate to the to the revolution. Um, I think that adds a dimension to the discussion about. Um, Maybe a you know a wider subject which has been written about in 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 some books um you know about espionage spies in the revolution there's been a lot written about that's been t v series about that, which I think are designed more to inf- inform than to uh educate but that's what probably most t v series do um one thing in particular, I hope it would make people do and um well, it's, I think it's one of the motivations for my wanting to write the article and, and, and also write a book. Um, you know, I don't want to say anything disrespectful about Nathan Hale, who's one of our, obviously one of our most legendary heroes um, in the nation, you know, and, and the state of Connecticut, from which both he and Nolan Hale um, voted, it's, its legislature voted. I think, back in the 80s, to to name Hale as the Connecticut state hero. But um, I'd like to put in a good word for Knowlton, who was Hale's commanding officer. And, um, you know, Hale is to be admired for his bravery, if not for his lack of good judgment in going on a spy mission for which he was singularly unqualified by virtue of his lack of training and, and the fact that his temperament was very ill-suited to this sort of thing as he was so advised by his friends, by his peers at the time who tried to discourage him from doing this. And unfortunately he paid the ultimate uh, price for that. Um, You know, but he's, he's known largely for allegedly saying, you know, that one sentence that I get the sense uh, in all probability, he did not say, um, but interestingly enough, on the morning that before he was hanged, he one of the two missives that he wrote was to his commanding officer, Colonel Knowlton, because that was what you know military protocol required that he report to his superior officer the outcome of his mission. Unbeknownst to Hale at the time was that on the morning he was writing this, um, it was six days after Knowlton had been killed at the Battle of Harlem Heights. So um, you know, all hail, hail! But I think that Knowlton, uh, frankly. It deserves as much or more recognition in terms of what he actually did. Um, And so if this article helps to do that, then uh, I will be very pleased.
0: David Price, thanks again.
1: Thank you very much, Brady.
0: The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.